0: With grocery prices rising and growing awareness about the threat of climate change and what that means for the global food supply, a lot of people are paying more attention to what they eat and where their food comes from. Tampa Bay has a thriving culinary scene and there's also a network of entrepreneurs at every stage of food production. Today we're going to speak with a Tampa Bay resident who turned an idea about backyard farming into a business. Zach Correa's Lemon Graft is in just a few cities now, but he has big plans for his online marketplace where people can buy and sell homegrown food. We'll also hear from Sam Myers, whose distillery, the Tampa Bay Rum Company, taps into the legend of the pirate, Jose Gaspar. And we'll talk with chef Shayla Daniels, who launched her pastry business, Shay Shay's Sweets, after working as a pastry chef in the restaurant industry. First, meet Zach Correa. He's an architecture graduate who says the idea for his online marketplace came from thinking about designing sustainable communities. He's also a 2021 How I Built This fellow, winning a coveted spot in NPR's program for promising entrepreneurs. Zach says he wants to reduce the barrier to entry. So there's no sign-up fee, but Lemongraft charges grow as a percentage after they make a sale. He spoke to me via Zoom from Embark Collective, a startup incubator in downtown Tampa. So how does your app work? And I wonder if you could explain a little bit about the name Lemongraft, what's the significance in that?
1: Um, the way the platform works is uh, you can go on this website, uh, lemongraft.com, and you can shop in all your neighbor's backyards, see what everyone in your community is growing, uh, and then you can buy and sell local and homegrown foods with your, with your neighbors. So it really opens up the marketplace to everyone, allowing um, anyone to participate in the, the local food system. We have people in their apartments who are growing out of pots; uh, they're growing like herbs, and they have way too much oregano, and so they sell their extra oregano to their neighbors. <laughs> we have people who are just out of their backyard; they have a couple fruit trees, and when it, when the fruit is ripe, they have hundreds of all this excess, you know, fruit, and they're like, "Hey, let me let me sell that to my neighbors," and then uh, and then they take that money and they buy you know, the oregano from the person in the apartment or whatever. Um, and so what it does is it just it removes all the barriers to enter the marketplace, uh, much like Airbnb or Uber did for their respective markets, uh, really allowing anyone to participate as a driver or a host, like, hey, do you have a bedroom? Rent out your bedroom. And we're kind of saying the same thing, like, do you have a backyard? You don't need to be a farmer to participate in the food system. Ever. And we think that that's the future for how we're developing, how we will eat really, in the, in, the, in the future. I think it's going to be a community-based food system, and community-based systems are really uh, more sustainable and resilient structurally. So the name Lemongraft came from, when I first had this idea, I had pitched it to a couple people in the space, and everyone thought it was a crazy idea. They're all like, you're not going to feed the world from people's backyards. It's just, it's never going to happen. You need big agriculture. Uh, in order to feed the world. And so really what they were telling me is that it's a, it's a dud, you know, like gardening is kind of like a hobby, but it's not very useful. So it's like a, it's like a lemon, you know, like a, like a dud. Um, and so I, I thought about it and I was like, you know what, I think I understand what they're saying, but I think they're referring to self-sustainability, like this idea of I can be sustainable all within my fence line, um, but I don't see that model of sustainability uh, anywhere in nature. Uh, in nature, it shows us uh, interconnected network of dependencies and it's just this elaborate network, you know, of, of interdependencies. And that's really just another word for community. Mm-hmm. And so I thought to myself, I said, well, all these little tiny, you know, pieces of land that are growing by themselves, they might be considered lemons maybe, like they're not going to really truly support the individuals within their respective properties. It's like, but what if we were to bring them all together? Uh, I used grafting as like an analogy, like what if we were to graft them all together, we, we would then have this, this new structure or this new tree and that could be extraordinarily valuable and so lemon graft was kind of this idea of like grafting together all of these individual scraps of land to create this uh, new agricultural system of coordinated small-scale growers.
0: So at the moment is it just people growing stuff in their backyards or on their balconies or do you have some slightly larger scale like
1: small farms involved as well? We have small farms as, uh, involved as well, uh, and even medium-sized farms. So right now, we have every, everything from apartment to backyard. Uh, we have urban farms on just a few acres in the middle of downtowns. Uh, we have 150-acre farms that are that are getting involved now. Um, even uh, mushroom growers and growing out of, out of buildings, inside buildings, or, or microgreens growing inside warehouses. Uh, we have um, people who do value-added products like uh, fermented foods and kimchi and sauerkrauts and kombuchas and uh, honeys and all sorts of stuff.
0: How many people are involved then? Do you have a sense of what your kind of production scale is or, or how many people are actually in the production end of things?
1: we just launched a couple months ago so we've just been testing the markets here in uh, downtown tampa uh, i'd say when we when we launched we kind of grew by like 60 percent brought us to about 500 we are now at about 800 members uh, just last week we had a big growth spurt of another or no 300 uh, members um, and so it's just a matter of people signing up and connecting to people in their community and so we're kind of picking a couple communities to really focus our efforts on to kind of get some density together because uh, it is a network um, and so therefore our value is really in connecting people and if the other people don't show up to the party at the same time at the same place then it's kind of a dull party so so we're really focusing our efforts on on density in specific uh, locations uh, to as we launch this thing
0: it's just Tampa Bay at the at this point in time
1: it's not just Tampa. Uh, so Tampa was our first location. We're going to be launching in uh, in Tennessee, just in like the Nashville and southern south of Nashville area. We have another community that's getting started out in Boulder, Colorado, and there are tons of other people who are who signed up all around the country and even in Canada and a couple other countries who are like on standby waiting for this to uh, to kind of get more um, density in their in their areas.
0: So coming back to the the numbers too. So 800. 800- People roughly at this point we're taping this mid June, is that just producers or is that producers and purchasers or just members in general?
1: So with with uh, graft it's a it's a unique kind of supply chain. What we've built is a it's it's a decentralized supply chain for local food, and that's fundamentally different than any other way you're going to access your food. And what that means is that part of what Lemongraft is doing is we're redefining the farmer. Like what is the future of, uh, what is going to be the future definition of the farmer? And we don't think it's going to be career farmer out in the middle of nowhere on big pieces of land, selling through the supply chain, distributing to consumers. That model separates the supplier and the consumer, so you have the, the producer the consumer. On Lemongraft, we're really bridging that gap and we're bringing them together saying, you know what, we think that the future of agriculture is really more or less the same. So I might be uh, a consumer but I also have something growing in my backyard and therefore I'm also a producer. But I'm a small-scale producer, so I produce I produce something, I contribute to the community, and then I consume. And so we think that, you know, um, and we see this happening on the platform, is that a lot of our growers are also consumers and a lot of our consumers are becoming growers or they are growers it's to some capacity. I would say that right now, approximately a third of, um, of all members are dedicated as growers, um, and that's growing over time as people realize that they can participate it's really an education as people use the platform more they realize like the light bulb goes off and they're like oh wait i can participate like i could sell something to the community and then they do
0: well let me ask you this then so people already use farmers markets they use csa's there are online food swap networks and other networks where people can come together and and sell or trade food so what is it that makes LemonGraft different
1: it's the barriers to enter the market. You know, with a, Right now, the, the easiest way to participate in your local food system is a farmer's market. And we love farmer's markets, and we're even partnered with farmer's markets. We're not trying to replace uh, farmer's markets or really any part of the system. We're just trying to add some relief to the system and open it up a little bit more to individuals who currently aren't able to access it. And with the farmer's market model, I have to apply. There's typically an application fee. That's an upfront cost. Then I have to pay for my uh, to have a booth there, so I have to... It's something like depends on the location, but I've seen $600, you know, for the season to be able to to have a booth, and then I have to have a have a tent and a table. Uh, but that's not even the most expensive part. The most expensive part is my time to harvest an unknowable amount of product, bring that to market, and then spend all weekend trying to peddle my my products and sell it. You know, my time for the entire duration of the weekend. Often we find that growers who participate in a market like this, there's a lot of. Un- uncertainty, uh, and if I don't sell it all, then it goes bad, typically. Uh, it depends on the product, but most most of the products go bad if, if I don't sell it because I'm not going to be able to sell it next week. And so we find that, that in, the, in the current marketplace, the most expensive part about farming is actually taking the product to market. And we find that growers are losing something like 50% uh, trying to bring their product to local markets. And commercially speaking, bigger commercial operations um, statistically lose something closer to 90%. To bringing their products to market, and it's just insane. And so Lemongraft has no barrier to enter, so there's no risk up front. Uh, you list your product digitally. If you don't sell, that's fine. You don't have to do anything. If you sell, then you already guaranteed payment. You bring, you harvest only what you sold. You bring it to the market. You drop it off with the host, and then you go home. You don't have to waste your time you know, trying to sell it, and then you get paid. And it's a very efficient market. Same for the host. They only are receiving products that they already sold, uh, and they don't have to buy or resell products, so it's very very low risk for for them because they're not sitting on inventory or managing inventory.
0: What about this notion of people's taste though because people are used to if you shop in a supermarket you're used to being able to get what you want whenever you want it right and it seems to me with a system of relying on backyard agriculture so to speak or at least smaller scale farms and locally produced stuff you're going to have to maybe retrain people to think a little more seasonally about what they're consuming how do you do that
1: yeah that's that's a really great point people are gonna to have to buy in the season uh, in their area like I said before I don't think Lemongraft is going to replace any existing food system that uh, that we currently have and I think people will still buy at the grocery store if they want mangoes in the winter time but for those who wish to uh, if they, if they're in the summer and mangoes are in season and they want To support their community and they want to eat the best tasting mango that they've ever had what we find is that eating seasonally people it is an easy trade-off to say i'll eat seasonally because the food is going to be 10 times better in flavor and in nutrient density it's going to be more fresh so like people um, on Lemongrass, they're getting it from maybe five miles away rather than 1500 miles away they're getting it within hours of it being harvested rather than months or even up to a, a year of being harvested and they taste the difference like like when when you taste food that's grown locally from people in biodiverse environments and small-scale agricultural environments, you can taste the difference. It's not even a little different. It's enti- it's like an entirely new world of food. And um, a lot of people I found are kind of frustrated that they're like, oh, my goodness, have I, I feel like I've been lied to my entire life about what a banana is supposed to be or what uh, a steak is supposed to taste like. And, and it's not even anywhere close to being the same.
0: Well, Zach Correa is the founder of Lemon Graft. Thanks so much for your time, Zach. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you, thank you. I'm so privileged to be here.
0: Zach Correa was a How I Built This fellow in 2021. And you can catch How I Built This, the podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, and idealists Saturday mornings at 10 on WUSF 89.7 News. You're listening to Florida Matters. We're talking with Tampa Bay food entrepreneurs. Up next, Sam Myers distills rum inspired by the pirate Jose Gaspar. And Shayla Daniels finds the sweet spot with her pastry business. The conversation continues in a minute. Welcome back to Florida Matters, I'm Matthew Petty. We're talking about Tampa Bay's food entrepreneur scene, and we're going to meet two people who've each found a niche where they can perfect their craft. Sam Myers is a chiropractor in his day job, but a few years ago he started the Tampa Bay Rum Company. Sam takes inspiration from the legend of the pirate Jose Gaspar, and he's now looking to expand his business into a brew distillery and make beer as well. And Chef Shayla Daniels was working as a pastry chef at a restaurant when she took a leap of faith and launched her own business, Shay Shay's Sweets, making macarons and other sweet treats. I spoke to Chef Shay and Sam via Zoom. Sam began by talking about how he turned his passion project for rum into a business that attracts locals and tourists alike. Shay, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Sam, thank you as well. Thank you. You started your company back in 2015 and the marketing kind of leverages the story of that pirate right so uh, who's your clientele is it is it tampenos is it locals or is it kind of tourists or is it a mix of both
3: it's it's a big mixture i i made sure that i found a spot um, right in the heart of ybor city i'm directly behind the columbia it's kind of me on a shoestring budget i'm actually a chiropractor full time um and so this uh rum project has been just kind of a passion side project uh and you know with gasparilla uh, there's nowhere else in tampa or in florida it could be in my opinion than, than in Ebor, unless i could plop down right on bay shore but i can't do that
0: what was the distillery market like in the tampa bay region when you opened like has it grown similar to the way craft brewing has really taken off in florida and elsewhere
3: it's growing, but it's, it's been a struggle just because the laws were very antiquated, kind of post-prohibition. For most of the time, you couldn't sell anything, any bottles or drinks out of your tasting room or out of your distillery at all, direct to consumer. You had to sell to a distributor who would then supply it to the stores and restaurants. So you had to have good contacts in the industry. Mm -hmm. or millions of dollars so but the laws have changed we can sell bottles now and as of last year we can sell cocktails made with our own spirits which you know helps pay the bills while you are putting massive amounts of of product in barrels and sitting and waiting for them to age
0: well Shay, let me turn to you, I read that you grew up baking with your grandmother and watching the Food Network. And then later you were on the Food Network yourself. And then after working in the hospitality industry, you launched your own company. So what was it like making that move? And what was the turning point that made you decide to strike out on your own?
2: It was crazy. My whole life, my mom had like instilled in me super hard work ethic, like put your head down, get it done, you know, work 10 times harder than everyone else if you want to be great. And so after like graduating high school, the very next month I started pastry school. So I didn't even take like summer off or anything and just grinding and grinding and grinding. I had brain surgery in 2011. So that's when we moved here to Florida because I have a metal plate in my head. So Mm -hmm. cold Wisconsin weather doesn't work well. And um, I got in with some great companies. I worked with Columbia for three years, I believe. I was the commissary manager and pastry chef there. And it just was long, long hours. If you're in the century, you understand it. it's definitely a burnout field, <laughs> but it just hit me one day. Cause I started doing my business on the side. Cause I'm just like, okay, well I'm doing this one thing. I'm like, but I love macarons. Like, so mm-hmm. I started doing farmer's markets in my spare time. And I got to the point where I was having to turn down custom orders and not do as many markets as I wanted to, because I just didn't have enough time in my life to do it. I was super nervous. And I was kind of at the point too where I'm like, if I'm busting my butt, you know, literally make myself sick, working for someone else to make their dreams come true. Not that I didn't love where I was, but I'm like, if I could stop that and put all of that time and effort into my business, like how great could that be? I just got to the point where I'm just like, you know what? I, I have to take the leap of faith. Like I just have to quit, be done. And jump and I jumped and to my surprise I was making more money than I was making at my job, my like normal day job. So I'm just like, oh, why did I wait so long to do this? It's been it's been tough, but so worth it.
0: And how long ago was that?
2: That was last March, March twenty third of twenty twenty one. Took the leap and I quit my day job and I've been Running full seam ahead, just doing shay shay sweets.
0: Did the pandemic factor into your decision at all? Because there has been so much written about the so called great resignation, right? People really taking time to reassess amidst all of the upheavals in the labor market. Did that kind of have any factor at all in your decision there?
2: It did a little bit. Um, and I'll say it did because hours were cut and I'm just like, okay, well, I still need to be making money, and I was nervous, though, because of the pandemic, like, you know, they weren't really spending extra money, because everybody's holding on to it, because they're not working, so I was super nervous, but I noticed that people wanted sweets. Everybody was depressed, and all they wanted to do was either drink or drink and eat, and I was constantly getting orders, and I'm like, okay, well, maybe this isn't, you know, something where I should be just, you know, holding on to this day job, and when I quit, I was able to Literally do even more than I was, and I'm like, okay, so people still want their sweets. I can provide them, and I can do even more than I was doing before. To me, in, in reality, my brain was like, "You're crazy! It's a pandemic. What are you doing? No, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. don't. This isn't the time to do this." But it just, I'm blessed. It worked out for me.
0: Sam, what about yourself? I mean, the last couple of years have been tricky, I'm sure, for a lot of bar owners and people in the hospitality industry. Has it kind of been tough to? to sail the Tampa Bay Rum Company through that as well for yourself?
3: Well, the Tampa Bay Rum Company, uh, like I was saying earlier, um, with the kind of the atmosphere, of the laws in, in Florida has always been a challenge. Um, mm-hmm. and I had no background in the field. So it was a learning curve. It was more of a ready fire aim as opposed to ready aim fire project. Um, (laughs) And I've been struggling with it and and it's been a tough learning curve, but as, as we've gone along, it's just been, it's wonderful. But when the pandemic first hit, actually it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Uh, Everybody in Tampa wanted hand sanitizer and and small distilleries started making them. And we had everything I dreamed of with rum sales happened with hand sanitizer. We had people circling the block trying to get hand sanitizer from us. And it was, it was fabulous for about, uh, about six to eight weeks. And then, uh, you know, just like the toilet paper shortage, then there was hand sanitizer everywhere and the bottom fell out of that. So as that was happening, the, the distillery was, was profiting for a short while. The chiropractic clinic and physical therapy clinic, uh, took a dump because Nobody wanted to get within six feet of you. so that that mm-hmm. so it was it was an insane juggling act over the past couple of years, just trying to float these these businesses. But you know we're kind of getting evened out right now, and and with the new law, I'm actually building out an expanded bar area, and we're adding a brewing system. So we're going to be doing a concept like farm to table. Uh, it'll be farm to bar top. I drive mm-hmm. down. To South Florida and pick up the molasses myself we use local farmers for the fruit and so we're as we struggle along here as we limp out of this pandemic. i'm trying to change the concept to, to have a little more direct access to uh, consumers with a pirate theme bar right in the middle of a pirate theme distillery, which is right in the middle of a pirate theme city in Tampa.
0: There are some other kind of economic challenges we're experiencing right now. I I wonder if inflation is taking a bit of a bite out of your business at this point in time.
3: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I buy products in bulk, um, not even inflation, just um, global supply chains, getting glass bottles. So if you're you're buying bulk glass bottles, a bottle type that I've used for years is no longer available because this country's shut down and they're not producing. We don't produce glass in the U S it's coming from South America or China or Europe even. And so trying to, to get the supplies, trying to get things to repair breakdowns and stuff within the distillery is, is difficult and takes months where I, you know, I'd have something done in weeks Mm -hmm. and then, yeah, the, the fuel prices and stuff like that, when I'm running down to, uh, South Florida to haul up the molasses, you know, that doesn't help. So shipping is is significantly more. And yeah, you know, I mean, when you're making a, a craft product, you're already kind of a, a thin margin and it's hard to bump up those prices and make people pay more. So a lot of times we're eating those costs in in the bottle sales, which is also nice that we're we're starting the bar so that selling to customers by the drink is, is certainly going to be not as costly as selling the whole bottle, the whole corp, the whole mm-hmm. label, all that kind of stuff.
0: Chef Shea, uh, what about yourself? What, what are you seeing as far as the cost of ingredients and, and kind of weighing up how much to pass on to your your consumers?
2: It's been insane. Literally, last year I was when I was doing my taxes, the same butter that I was buying at $6 a pound is now $14. Then there's, you know, powdered sugar, there's sugar, like you're saying, in certain companies, our countries aren't producing things, so they're still shut down. So now there are shortages and everything. So for my packaging, it's that the price of that has gone up tremendously, or it's just not in stock. So then I've had to have to find, new packaging which is tedious and a pain because especially with macarons they're so delicate you just can't put them in anything and it's it's so hard because at the beginning of the year I did raise my prices slightly but had no idea (laughs) that six months in gas is you know pushing six seven dollars a gallon and I'm eating the cost at this point because I'm like I can't raise my prices again when I just you know I don't want my customers feel that but it it is hard because I still need to make a profit. It still is a business. And there's so now there's also like certain flavors that I can't offer because there's, you know, no strawberries anywhere, or Mm -hmm. I needed blueberries the other day, and I went to every store that you can think of and no one had blueberries like, so it's, it's been very rough. And I think it's, it's difficult as a small business owner to keep going, because it's almost like disheartening, in a way, it's like, you know, we're trying to make it trying to push through, like, just trying to break even at the end of the day. And now there's all these road bumps that are coming mm-hmm. in. Inflation is not getting any better at
0: all. Shay, you, you talked earlier about the kind of business instincts or the work ethics that your family instilled in you. Sometimes though, you know, passion for food or culinary talent doesn't always translate into a successful restaurant or bar or food business. What do you think is the? What do you think of the ingredients for success?
2: Well, that's a good question. Um, I would think that it would have to. A of course, your passion for it. You have to be passionate about what you're doing because if you're not, it. To me, it reflects in your product, whatever you're making. If you're not passionate about it, be it pastries or even alcohol, if you're not passionate about it, it's going to reflect in what you're doing. Another thing that I feel is important is surrounding myself with not only like-minded people but those who I aspire to be like so keeping other restaurateurs in my circle so that way if I have any questions or I hit a road bump somewhere I can reach out and ask questions I am huge on accepting advice and um constructive criticism, because I'm not, I can, I, sometimes you can just get focused on one thing and not see everything around. So I try to keep people around me that see the outside picture as well. And I think Mm -hmm. doing that helps me stay successful because I love what I do, but keeping other people like, Hey, here's this, here's that, or having people that excel in my weaknesses is very important as well for me.
0: Uh, Sam, what do you think the ingredients for success have been for you over the last five plus years?
3: The reason I started the business, I'm originally from out west. I, uh, I'm i from the Seattle area and a buddy of mine back home, he opened up a whiskey distillery and they were wildly successful, wildly successful. They're a national brand now. And I, I looked at it and I kind of read the tea leaves and I said, well, Florida is about 10 years behind the West Coast and craft everything. Um, Our craft brewing here started well after, you know, California, Colorado, Oregon, Washington. Uh, And and I looked around, I said, well, there's no distilleries around here. So I said, well, I better jump on this. And so I jumped on it. And then I realized there's no distilleries because it's such a difficult thing to do with Mm -hmm. the laws as they were at the time. And so that's what I say, you got to understand, you know, the industry and, and the ins and outs of it and distribution and finding a distributor. And, but yeah, it, it's an ever-changing thing. So you need to be malleable. You need to make changes, um, in order to, to have success in the industry, which I would imagine is in any business.
0: Well, Sam Myers, owner of the Tampa Bay Rum Company, home of Gasparilla Rum. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. And Chef Shea Daniels, pastry chef, baker, and owner of Shea Shea Sweets. Shea, thank you as well.
2: Oh, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate you guys chatting with me and giving me the opportunity.
0: And that's Florida Matters for this week. You can find us online at WUSFnews.org or via Facebook or Twitter. Search for Florida Matters. Special thanks this week to WUSF's Delia Cologne for introducing us to some of Tampa Bay's food entrepreneurs. Delia hosts The Zest Podcast, which explores the way Florida's unique culture is showcased in its food. You can listen to the latest season at thezestpodcast.com.
3: I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.